All right, good morning, everyone. We'll um, get cracking. I'm aware that's been a full and busy morning. Um, so my name is Craig, as James mentioned. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm a math teacher by profession, and uh, one of my students actually told me this week that they find my accent very soothing. Um, so if you do nod off during my message, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> but I will try and be as uh, exciting as I can, so you don't nod off. Um, but we are in the second part of our series called uh, Eyewitness. I know Boris wanted to claim ownership of that really clever pun about eyewitness, and I'm really sad that I never came up with it. Um, but we're talking about the time after Jesus' resurrection um, until he went back into heaven again, which was about 40 days or so. And we're looking at some of the stories of the people that actually met Jesus during that time. Um, so Boris, last week, if you uh, didn't hear his message, you can jump onto our YouTube channel or you can hear it as a podcast. I wasn't here last week. I listened to it as a podcast and it was great. So you can do that. Um, but he spoke about the two disciples that met Jesus on long, along the road to Emmaus and how their expectations of how they were going to meet Jesus was totally different to how he actually met them and how real and how personable Jesus is in meeting you wherever you're at. And today we're going to be talking about um, Doubting Thomas, who's the next person in our series. And it's actually quite remarkable that in my research, um, looking uh, for what I could find about Doubting Thomas, I actually found um, his journal, which was, was quite remarkable. So um, if you remember, Thomas was one of the disciples, and um, he was trying to, trying to find out what was happening with Jesus, and he, he didn't believe until he actually saw Jesus. So let's have a look um, at what is... It's what his journal said. It says, something is off. I have not been sleeping well and I feel restless all the time. I've not seen the other disciples since the night of the preparation day. That was last Friday. We'd eaten the Passover supper and we're looking forward to a really festive weekend. But I know that Jesus is dead. I saw him beaten, whipped, and eventually die on that Roman cross. He was a bloody mess after all that day, all day cruelty and beatings. And that was last Friday afternoon, more than a week ago. I still can't believe it. I was so convinced that what he said was true. He was such a gifted speaker, and I saw him do amazing things for people. But now that he's dead, this is all meaningless, and I've been duped. I'm not going to fall for one of these acts again. But then I've heard rumblings that Mary Magdalene, she said that she'd seen Jesus with two angels. But I don't know about her. She did have demons, didn't she? Jesus cast out our demons, but maybe one was left over, I'm not sure. And that's maybe made her a bit mad. In fact, it must be contagious because the whole city must be mad because I saw on my Facebook feed that many people who were dead had come back to life and were hanging out with their families again. I haven't seen anyone myself, but I must admit that I've not been going out that much lately. I feel a bit lost with no purpose or direction, and I just want to sleep. Then I heard about eight days ago, which was last Sunday, Cleopas and his mate were walking on their way to Emmaus, and they had an encounter with the spirit of something. Someone told me that a stranger spent a good three hours talking to them about the writings of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. As they walked down that dusty road towards Emmaus, the stranger told them about how Jesus could be found through all Scripture. As they began to understand this about Jesus, they could see why he had to die on the cross. I do remember Jesus saying something about dying and being resurrected, but it was far from my thinking at the time and I put it out of my mind. I think I'll walk over and see how my friends are doing. The last time I saw them, everyone was freaked out, scared and unbelieving as I am. But something has come over them this last week. Peter and John kept texting me saying that they've seen Jesus. But until I see it officially on Instagram, I won't believe. <laughs> so it's pretty remarkable what you find in the Taramara Library, I must say. But um, 
There we are. Let's just pray together as we open the scripture together and hear more about Doubting Thomas. God, we just pray that as we uh, read your word and we dig down as to what um, some of the stories and some of the eyewitness accounts have been at the time when you were alive, we just pray that you would speak to us so clearly that we would know you more and more as we read through your word. So turn with me in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible or a phone that distracts you, you can read on the screen with me. But you're going to be reading from John chapter 20, um, from verse 24 through to 31. So verse 24 says, One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it until I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound on his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So if you have a look at John chapter 20, it's actually got four different stories, which are four theological building blocks that make up um, some of the eyewitness accounts to Jesus' resurrection. The first part is uh, Peter and John, they saw the empty tomb. The second one was Mary Magdalene heard Jesus say her name. She thought it was the gardener. Uh, The third one was that Jesus appeared to the disciples in in the room where they were meeting. And finally, the one we're looking at today, which is uh, Thomas, as he feels Jesus' wounds. Now, together, these um, four eyewitness accounts, they provide us with... Uh, just some idea of what John is actually trying to communicate to us, what he's trying to, the real heart of his message. And we're going to look at that today through that, that fourth um, theological building block of Doubting Thomas through these three themes, three themes. The first one being the reality of the resurrection. The second one being how we should relate to Jesus. And thirdly, that faith is maybe doubt in action. So these four eyewitness accounts I suppose they, they add to the strength of the apostles, their account of what happened, by supplying a record of not only was there an empty tomb, but actually a personal eyewitness account of actually seeing Jesus alive. But this is not, actually, this is not only John's intent, just from this, but actually he's trying to convey what Jesus' presence means for them and what it means for us further down the line and what it means to actually experience Jesus' presence through his Spirit. Perhaps the word disciple is a bit weird for you and you don't usually use it in your normal context. But when I say disciple, uh, a disciple is someone who worships Jesus, who follows him, who's a servant, who's a witness, someone who wants to be more like him and learns from him, strives to be like Jesus themselves. And hopefully today I'll give you um, a little bit of something to think about, something to wrestle with as we work out how do we become disciples of Jesus and how do we do this journey together. So firstly, let's look at what is the reality of the resurrection? Charles Coulson once said this about the resurrection. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. If you don't know what Watergate is, because you're a bit young. Um, Watergate was a major political scandal in the U.S. Richard Nixon was the president, and they were trying to do all sorts of dodgy things and cover it up. Um, That's what Watergate was, apparently, in my words. Um, But this is what he said. So I know the resurrection is a fact, because Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. 
Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. So you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the absolute crux of the Christian faith. John's account of this resurrection is, is not just a singular event that we want to talk about, um, but it's actually a true historical fact that happened on, after Easter Sunday. Without it, one, we can only really look at Jesus as sort of a dead martyr whose lofty ideas were sadly misunderstood. But with it, one must stand in, in, in awesome reverence of the exalted Messiah, the Son of the living God who conquered death. He gave his life as a ransom, as Gretel mentioned earlier, and he's presently reigning at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's going to return to fix this broken world. So here's the logic. Try and, try and follow with me. If the resurrection is not possible, nor important, then Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then all of our preaching and teaching is in vain. And if our preaching and teaching is in vain, then our faith is empty. We've got no substance. There's no basis for it. If our faith is empty, that means then his disciples were false witnesses because what they said they'd seen him alive. If the disciples are false witnesses, then Jesus is not risen because they were the ones who told us about it. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith in him is futile and all of those who've died before us are gone for good. Without the resurrection, none of the promises that we read in the Bible would be believable. Only some of them might be true and others certainly not. And since there is no hope of the resurrection, then you and I, men and women, we are most pitiable. I encourage you to read this book by Lee Strobel. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called The Case for Christ. Um, there's a movie too if you're more of a visual learner. But it tells the story of an investigative journalist who wanted to try and disprove Christianity by disproving the reality of the resurrection. And uh, he interviews and occasionally interrogates, not like James did now to Brendan, um, interrogates like an array of scholars just who specialize in Christianity and New Testament um, theology. And he discovers that the evidence for Jesus, his existence, his divinity, and his resurrection is overwhelmingly true. And by the end of his journey, Strobel realizes that his atheism doesn't hold up uh, against the evidence that he discovered. Now, William Buckley once said this. He said, The uniqueness of the scandal of the Christian religion rests upon the mediation of revelation through historical events. Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events of history. To some people, this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique, because unlike other world religions, modern man has a means of actually verifying Christianity's truth by historical evidence. Or simply put, the resurrection of Jesus is a historically proven and verifiable historical event. This might, strange, might sound strange coming from the pulpit, um, but I don't want you to blindly trust what I say because I'm just a humble math teacher. I'm not an academic. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a historian or a researcher. And maybe this is actually a critical sticking point for you in Christianity, and I would 100% agree with you that this is a, a really important event. But I, would, I want to encourage you to really wrestle and go and investigate and research and see what you could find. And come and chat to me and let's see what, what you've come up with. 
But have a look in, at Jesus' words in verse 29. He says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I suppose it's all very good for John to record these because he was actually there to see Jesus. And most of us haven't had the privilege of actually examining his resurrected body and seeing that we are on the winning team. Thomas wasn't there on Easter Sunday. Although history uh, records him as doubting Thomas, I feel, feel pretty sorry for poor Tom. He was only doubting for literally a week, but then he gets the adjective doubting attached to his name forever. Poor guy. Uh, we actually met Tom, Thomas earlier in John's Gospel, in John eleven sixteen, 16. He committed himself to following Jesus, even though it meant he might die. So it was quite a loyal, although pessimistic, sentiment. <laughs> Perhaps this gives us a further clue into Thomas's cynical, glass-half-empty kind of worldview. Um, maybe you can relate to Thomas already, my wife. Um, but then look at his response in verse 28. My Lord and my God. This is, not, this is not a phrase or astonishment or praise to God. This is actually a confession of Thomas's heartfelt belief in Jesus. Thus, we see the most outrageous doubter of that group of disciples is someone who uh, utters the greatest confession that, Lord, that the Lord has risen from the dead. And Thomas got it. He, he grasped it and he understood that Jesus was no longer dead, but that he was alive. Everything that he'd experienced in his time with Jesus was validated. And similarly to Mary, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, I think the penny dropped for him. I think it dropped for him in two ways. One, I think he was obviously pleased that his mate was not dead, which was a really nice thing. But more substantially, I think he grasped what this actually meant, that Jesus was God and everything that had happened before him, Jesus' death and resurrection would impact all of humanity for the rest of time. So then what does that mean for us today? What does the reality of the resurrection mean for us today? Well, it affects how we relate to Jesus, and that's the second theme. John 20 is a fulfillment of many of the, pro uh, the promises in the Old Testament prophecies, as we heard last week on the Road to May's story, in which Jesus spoke about his return and his indwelling through the power of the Spirit. His resurrection also changes the way that we relate to him. Um, if you read there, Mary had initially thought that this was a return of Jesus' physical presence and his relationship with her um, as a friend, as a person. But no, this is actually talking about a new intimacy, a new way that we can relate to Jesus, and it's not a physical one. It's a spiritual one through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' spirit. It's a powerful presence of Jesus within us. His physical presence has rather practical limitations. He can only be in one place at one time. And it means if we want to see Jesus, we'd have to go to a specific place. But this new relationship, this means that there's an opportunity for every one of us, wherever we are, for all of us to be experience this relationship. 1 John 4 verse 13 says, God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. And this is not an impersonal spirit. This is uh, no ambiguous inspiration from God. This is Jesus himself indwelling within his disciples and within us, taking residence as he promised. I wonder where you stand in your relationship with Jesus. How do you relate to him? If you had to describe your relationship with Jesus in a few words, what would you say? And as you'll see as we work, work our way through the series of these eyewitness accounts, um, they take us to the story of Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out on these disciples at Pentecost. Jesus' promise to never abandon his disciples or never to abandon us comes to fruition as the Holy Spirit is poured out um, on them on that day. And that same Spirit is alive and working amongst us today. And whilst you may feel it might be better for you to actually feel those wounds for yourself, to see the hardcore evidence... Listen to the blessing and promise that Jesus actually commits to. 
So the blessing he promises us in John 20 verse 28 says, Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So there's actually blessing for those who, who believe without seeing the hard evidence. And then look at the promise that he gives us in John 14 verse 12, which says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. The promise that we will see greater works than in Jesus' time on earth. Isn't that an amazing promise? And this is through the Holy Spirit in action throughout the world. So this leads me to my, my final point. Where does, where does faith fit into this uh, sort of hard evidence discussion? And until I see it for myself, and I won't believe it. Where does it fit into this kind of discussion? Well, this is perhaps not the perfect definition of faith, but I'll try and explain. But I would say that faith is doubt in action. So should faith be uh, something that is based on objective criteria? And if so, where, where do we go for that? Or is faith sort of some kind of inner experience of hope or uh, a way to try to resolve these uh, objective realities? Is faith entirely experiential? It's an inner emotional psychological decision shaping how we live and think. But it's not anchored to anything specific like the empty tomb or Jesus' resurrection that we've spoken about. In fact, if you go and read up, you'll see that scholars have actually conceded that this divorce between theology and history is actually untenable. And such a belief will lead to uh, modern Gnosticism that possesses no objective or historic anchor. And I'm going to be probably fully transparent here, and I did check with James, and I'm allowed to be honest. But I've had some, I've had some major doubts about my Christian faith in my life. Robin and I, my wife, we've, we've had many hearts to hearts about this, and we've, we've asked the hard questions. And we say, is this, is this a fairy tale? Am I making this up? Is this sign of some kind of psychological construct that I've come up to sort of protect myself from what's happening in the world or try and explain things that I don't understand? Is it like folklore that's been passed down? Is it maybe a mechanism that I use to project all the things that we fail to provide for ourselves so we, we project it into a narrative um, for something that we don't understand? Well, as I've got older and uh, more gray has appeared in my beard and my hair, I've started to become... A, become clear that the world is a complex place and I don't feel like I've become able to grasp or, or even justify everything that happens to me. And I suppose I've become, a, become able to tolerate more gray um, and maybe the less certain about uh, being more orthodox about things that I was perhaps more fervent about when I was, when I was in my 20s. And it's a pretty, pretty humbling place to get to that place where I realize I'm actually less and less confident in my own ability and my own intelligence than I ever have been before. But what I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt is that I've known God's presence with me throughout all these times and these experiences. In fact, I actually can't say that there's been any sort of major apologetical argument that anyone's had with me. Someone's sort of unequivocally proven something to me that's really been a light bulb moment for me. That I've gone, oh yeah, that's it, therefore I'll be a Christian. But it's actually my experience of God's love and his grace and his faithfulness that puts me where I am here today. So I suppose faith then is not just a belief of facts for fact's sake or blind belief without doubt or the need to wrestle something through. I'd say that faith is fundamentally, though, a matter of relationship than it is belief. The resurrected Jesus always points to himself, to relationship with him. In fact, if you look at Thomas's response, his response was relational. He experienced the facts 
of the resurrection literally firsthand. He could feel it with his hand. He'd wrestled with belief and unbelief. But he doesn't respond with, ah, you are Lord and God. He responds, my Lord and God. And John is not asking us to just simply believe or even to believe the proven facts or to have faith for faith's sake. He's asking us to place our faith into someone. And that's someone being the most trustworthy person that we could put our faith into. And that's Jesus himself. Look at verse 28 again. Jesus does not just even disparage the faith of Thomas. Listen to his tone. It's not, oh, so now you believe because you've seen me. But it's simply cited, it's simply cited as a fact. Because you've seen me, you have believed. Thomas's faith is anchored to sight. Then Jesus goes on to utter a blessing, not on those who see and believe, which is perhaps a virtue that's paraded throughout these eyewitness stories. Rather, he offers a blessing on those who believe but have not seen. And here Jesus is pointing beyond Thomas, beyond the apostolic witnesses, and to those of us in the world of the church who come after Thomas and after Jesus' return to heaven. And John understands perfectly well that uh, those of us who believe but haven't seen don't have the same opportunities. And perhaps Thomas is, uh, is a man similar to us. He was a man for whom faith was a real wrestle and was only going to be a reality when he got that concrete evidence. Um, he didn't see the empty tomb and he hadn't seen Jesus himself. For him, faith probably seemed daunting and impossible. Well, I think Thomas becomes a, a bit of a template for us and those of us who read the story about Jesus from a distance. We hear the report, we hear what John's gospel, and we challenge to believe. But Thomas obtains the evidence that he desires and he believes, but he misses the blessing that Jesus pronounces on those who believe and that cannot actually touch his wounds for himself. And this is our position. This is where we find ourselves, and this is how we have to live out our lives in the modern world. That's why I suppose I've said faith is then doubt in action. Those things that I, I cannot understand or process or have uncertainties about, Jesus doesn't expect us to just blindly ignore them, but he calls us to put our doubts into action. And that action being in relationship with Jesus himself. And we are so used to, un, to unused to fixing our eyes on Jesus and the risen Christ and the doubts that we might have about those um, and our need for miracles and the authority on prayer or how we relate to the Trinity or that we're even on the winning team. From time to time, God actually breaks in with those Thomas moments and gives us those opportunities to get a glimpse of what the disciples might have seen. So in closing, what, what is the take and what do, we, what do we learn from these three themes that we've um, learned about in John 20? Well, if you look at the last bit of that chapter, it says the purpose for this book. And John discloses what he, why he's writing this gospel. And it is this, that belief leads to life. And life is a gift given through the power of Jesus. But in what sense, what is sense is John calling us forward to belief? Um, oddly enough, different manuscripts read two different spellings in the Greek for that word belief um, in John 20 verse 31. And, that, and the difference is that might be quite important. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm not an English or a Greek major, but I found um, this distinction quite fascinating. So the first way that we see it is the aorist subjunctive. Man, I sound intelligent when I say that. It wasn't my research that got me there. Or it might be the present subjunctive. Can you see the different spelling in the two words? Almost identical, except for one letter S. That's between the two words. So if you read it without or with the S, that's the aorist subjunctive. That refers to a singular event. Whereas if you read it without the S, that is a repeated event. 
So there's actually quite a bit of exegetical energy that is bent trying to work out the difference in this. And the tense is actually quite important because John is maybe writing to those to bring people to faith for the first time, that you may come to believe. Or if it's the present subjunctive, that implies that John is talking to Christians, asking them to go deeper into their faith, that you may continue to believe. I suppose the first point talks about evangelism and the second one to encouragement. But I think this transposes beautifully into how we understand the gospel and that it's both a moment and it's a journey. A single event of the penny dropping going, ah, yes, that makes sense, to repeated events of us understanding the depth and the breadth of what the gospel means, similar to what Mary and Thomas experienced as we read in John 20. So being a follower of Jesus is, uh, being a disciple is not about believing in Jesus, uh, sorry, is not only by believing in Jesus through the dwelling of his son, the spirit. But this is maybe not the time to jump into an extensive debate about whether acknowledging, acknowledging Jesus as Lord is the first event and then receiving the spirit is the second event. But we can read this passage and read how it emphasizes the moment and the journey. You are filled with the spirit, Jesus' presence within you, and then you continue to be filled. And being filled with the Spirit is not, uh, is not only about being filled with power and the ability to perform miracles or speak in another language. It's primarily about relationship. Christian discipleship is union with Jesus Christ that empowers and transforms us. It's mystical. It, it exceeds our rational abilities to understand and to quantify. John's gospel serves both of those audiences as perhaps the clearest and most poignant message of what the gospel is all about and what Jesus' mission is for the world. And if anything, I want to encourage you this morning to keep moving forward in your faith. Whether you are at that first moment, please don't stagnate. Please don't sit at the back and politely applaud and go, that's lovely. But this is literally a matter of life and death, both here and now, as well as for eternity. And I'm not saying that you can't have doubts and I'm not asking you to follow blindly, but I'm asking you to keep pressing in, to keep exploring, to keep asking questions, to keep studying, to keep pursuing. And I want to point you to Jesus, the most patient and the most kind and the most gentle person you will ever meet. He knows you inside and out, and he loves you more than you will ever know. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing a song uh, to close, and I want to give you a chance to consider your position. If this is the first time that you're considering faith in Jesus, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you along that journey and give you some things to think about. But if it's not the first time and you're already on that journey of faith, I want you to take some time to commit yourself to keep moving forward and to keep pressing in. If you feel like you're stuck or there's something we'd love to, I can pray with you. I'd love to do that after the service.